Buenos días, ¿cómo están? Mucho gusto. Good morning. And before I start preaching, I want to uh, take a few minutes um, to share with you a little bit about our ministry in Colombia. So um, to do that, I'm going to um, answer some questions you may have about our ministry. First of all, what will what we will be doing in Colombia? What we will be doing in Colombia is fulfilling the Great Commission, teaching, baptizing disciples. Okay? That is what we'll be doing, fulfilling the Great Commission in Colombia by training and equipping pastors and church leaders in how to teach, how to preach, how to make disciples like Christ. Uh, where I just mentioned in Colombia, Colombia is a country very, very needy. In Colombia, there are about 50 million people, and there are only three seminaries. Think about that, three seminaries. Today, in this church, there has been more theology taught and available than literally in thousands and thousands of churches in Colombia. Um, Colombia is a the, third, the country with the third largest amount or, or witchcraft, practice of witchcraft, witchcraft in, the, in, in the world. The Islam is growing at a rate of 30%, 20% a year. Colombia is the number one country in, with child trafficking in the world. Colombia has been facing war for the last 60 years and violence. Colombia is the number one producer of cocaine in the world. Charismatics, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons are rapidly growing in Colombia. And again, there are thousands of pastors today preaching in churches, and they have not been in one single Bible class in their whole lives. That is hard for you to believe. When people ask us, how come you guys are going to train pastors? Should they, shouldn't they already be trained before going to the pulpit? Yes, but not in Colombia because of the lack of resources. So how we are going to accomplish that full commission? How are we going to fulfill the Great Commission in Colombia? By training pastors. So we'll be teaching, uh, I will be, uh, by God's grace, able to help establish a seminary. A huge, huge privilege. And you all are part of this. So we'll establish a, a seminary. I will go there as professor of all New Testament theology, theology and different subjects as the need comes. And also, by God's grace, I will be able to work in a church plant and, Lord willing, to start several churches in Colombia as time passes by. So why am I going to Colombia? Mark 6.34 says that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do after? He didn't build roads for them. He didn't make wells for them. It says, and he began to teach them many things. The compassion of Christ is reflected in spreading his word, in building up believers in his word and that's why we are going because the Lord is a compassionate God even to the Colombian people 
when we hope to go in September of, of, of this year, October, we are um, raising our support. And at this moment, I want to take uh, the opportunity to thank the leadership of the church and you as church for picking us up as your uh, missionaries to Colombia. Uh, we mean it with all our hearts. We want, that this, we want this relationship to be a relationship that not only benefits the Colombians, but you as church. But you as church. There is a blessing in advancing the kingdom of God, of course, and you are part of that. We are already uh, 50% thanks to your uh, generous contribution. We are still looking for more churches and individuals that may want to partner with us to get to the 100% by September of October. So please pray about that. So we are not going alone. I'm going with my wife, my daughter. I'm not going alone. But we need more team partners. So if you can pray for us, to, for the Lord to provide that. This is our prayer card. And here, as, as, as your auditorium, to your left, there is a table with our prayer cards, please. And visit us. Time, this is our uh, website, timeisnear.org. Timeisnear.org. So please visit us and you will be able to, to watch um, our video. And as you get one of these prayer cards and also in the table outside, sign up for our prayer uh, letter. So you will be informed about what the Lord is doing in Colombia. So now I just want to, you guys to invi invite you to you, to, for all of you, to open your Bibles, please. And we are going to open them in John. John cha chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. And uh, before I uh, start this message this morning, I'm going to, to pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for um, this time that we are going to have in your word, Lord. Father, we pray for a special blessing upon this church, Lord, that you may bless us through what you teach us today. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. It says like this, John 5, 1 to 14. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the ship gate a pool in Aramic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In this lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was the, I'm reading verse uh, 5 in the version I have, ESV. One man was there who had been an invalid, invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down, down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who he was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. A crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that no, nothing worse may happen to you. The famous pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer said, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I repeat, what comes to our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Today, I want you for a moment to think what comes to your mind when you think about God. Whatever comes to your mind about God is the most important thing about you. And I'm not talking about a theological answer or a an answer that comes out from a creed, creed or a Sunday school answer. I'm talking about deep inside your heart. Who is God for you in the intimacy of your life as you go to trials, as you live your day to day? Who is God? The Lord has been very gracious to me and I have been able to study a little bit the Bible. Not much. It's an Infinite, infinite knowledge we will not be able to acquire. But from the little understanding of Scripture, I could define, I, I, or I could, or what comes to my mind when I think about God, I could sum it, sum it up in three words, in three terms. The first one is that God is holy. God is holy. Second, God is very, 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 very powerful. But also, God is very, 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 very merciful. He must be a very, very good God. This, is, this understanding of God allows me to trust my life to a God that though He's so powerful, so powerful, so powerful. Yet he can be so merciful to me. And talking about his power, just think of the universe. The greatness, the vastness, the beauty of the whole universe. There are over a hundred billion stars around the world, around the universe. I didn't know this, but a few months I found out that scientists have found out that, listen, there are, are as many stars and planets in the universe as sands, as grains of sand in the earth. Can you believe that? There are as many planets and stars in the universe as grains of sand in the earth. That's just unbelievable. And did you know that the DNA is even more, the human DNA is even more rich and complex 
that the most rich and vast galaxies? Have you seen the beautiful sunsets, the beauty of the ocean, the beauty and the incredible design of the human body? God must be very, very, very powerful. But you know, as much as he is powerful, he is merciful. Because mercy is also an attribute of God. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Mercy is an eternal attribute which knows no end. Just as you think of the vastness of the universe, you should be thinking about the greatness of his mercy, of his compassion. And today, that is what we will be learning and I will be talking about his power and his mercy. And today, I'm talking to you about a love history which brings the eternal power of God and the eternal mercy of God together in a way that is only compatible in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, I will be talking about a love history which is at the very, very heart of Christ. His meekness and his majesty, his humility and his glory, his mercy and power. Sets of attributes that can only come together in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a love history I love because I identify myself with this history very much. And I hope and pray that by the end of the message, you may also identify with this love history. But before we jump into the message, let me make three observations. The first one is that, as you may notice, I didn't read verse 4 in the English Standard Version. If you have the NASB or the King James, you have, a, you have verse 4 where he talks about an angel that went down at a, certain, uh, at a certain season into the pool, moved the water, and an angel descended and, and brought healing to the people. That verse 4 is not in many Bibles, in many versions, because archaeologists, archaeologists, archaeological studies, and they have done discoveries, they have found about 5,800 manuscripts. And they realized that in most of those manuscripts, this verse wasn't written. So the archaeologists and the scholars said, huh, it might not be in the originals. Maybe it was added to it. So the NS NSB has it in brackets. I just noticed that. It's in brackets, in parentheses, because they are not that sure. The ESV has it as a footnote, because they are not that sure if it should be there or not. So that is because, again, archaeologic uh, evidence has shown that might not be in the, uh, or might not have been in the original documents. But this archaeological um, evidence has also allowed us to find out something very, very interesting, that this healing, this sign, is not a fairy tale. This is not a made-up uh, made history. This is not an invention of John. In the year 1862, the French engineer and archaeologist Seamouse began what was called the Bethesda Project. And they found this site 
and you can Google it and find it, and you can see the colonnades, the columns, and you can see the pools. And now they have been able to demonstrate, number one, that it is true that that site existed. They have been able to explain the movement of the waters, and they found a canvas, a painting on one of the, wall, on one of the walls with an angel doing this, moving, or, or appearing that he was moving the waters. So that's another, observ uh, another observation that I wanted to tell you. The third observation that I want to uh, make before we go into the text is that this is the third sign of Jesus, the third miracle. The first one was when Jesus converted the water into, into wine. The second one was when Jesus healed the son of the royal officer in chapter 4. And now, this is the third sign. And this is very important because John 20, 30 says that Jesus made many miracles and he made many signs, but that the ones he wrote had a purpose. This sign that we are going to study, this miracle, has a very, very important purpose. John 20, 31, you don't need to go there, says, but these signs have been written so that you what? You what? May believe. What? That Jesus Christ is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. That is the Savior. That Jesus is the Son of God. That is the second person of the Trinity, God himself. So that by believing, that is when as result the byproduct of your belief, of your faith, is that you may have life in his name, in what he is, in what he represents. So today, we are talking about what? About life. That you may have life. And when we talk about life, we are also talking about death in the sense that is, in the, sense that is the opposite you may want to experience life. You want to experience life. You don't want to experience death. And the purpose of this history, love history, is that, that you may have life. So this is a very serious time. Very important, even very grave. This history is not just so that we can believe in miracles. It's not we just don't have more knowledge of the scriptures. It's not just to have a social gospel or mercy ministries, ministries in the church, is that we may believe. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing more important than that. So that's why I have titled this message, The Mercy and the Power of Christ. And I hope and I pray that this, this history may allow us to understand, to grasp, to appreciate the mercy of Christ so that we may respond to that mercy and to that power in a biblical way, in the way that he expects. The outline is very simple, so you follow me. The first point is in um, verse 6, the mercy of Christ. The second point is the power of Christ in verse 8. And the third point is your response to the mercy and power of Christ in verse 14. So let's start taking a look uh, to the text. So uh, verse, verse 1, it says, After this, 
After what? After all what Jesus had done in the previous chapters. In, verse, in chapter 4, he had healed the son of the royal officer in Canaan of Galilee. In verse 4, in chapter 4, he was in Samaria ministering to the Samaritan woman. In, ver, in chapter 3, he was in Jerusalem with Nicodemus and the disciples of John. In chapter 2, he was in Galilee with his mother. In chapter 1, he was in Bethany across the Jordan. And here we see Jesus as a missionary. The son of God who left his glory to come and minister to people. Today, we are in this place with so many commodities, with so many blessings, with so many things. AC, we have a car. Jesus, the son of God, had to go from village to village spreading the message of love, mercy, compassion of his father. Today, I, today I'm here because I had the privilege of flying. Somebody very graciously gave us a ride today. We are disconnected from the reality of that time. Jesus Christ was walking in the heat of the day, in the cool of the evening, the cool of the night. We should, rem- we should think a little bit about that example. Jesus, uh, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul, you don't have to be there, go there. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition. ambition. In humility counts others more important. Have the mind, the attitude, the heart of Christ, who though he was in the form, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a, doesn't say of a king, or a fancy pastor, a fancy missionary, of a servant. This is an example to us. That is, the, we need to learn today that we need to take this example of Jesus Christ. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The feast uh, is not that important. Uh, John doesn't mention what kind of feast or what, what feast it was. So we won't uh, go into that. But it says that he went up to Jerusalem. And verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. I already talked about that. It's a real place. And in verse 3, it says, In this lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And I want you guys to think about this. At that time, there wasn't social security. There were no doctors. There wasn't medical insurance. There were no hospitals. There was not medicine. We cannot relate to that, can we? No, we don't. We cannot imagine of a world like that. And Jesus Christ leaves his glory, comes down from heaven, becomes a man to visit a place with such an incredible need. Jesus knew the, the need of the world. That's why he left his glory and came down to earth to minister the people we need. But how much need do we have today? If I were to ask you, 
all of you, please come to this side of the room, those who need mercy today. Maybe no one of us would come, maybe including me. What do we need? We open our refrigerators, are full. We have our retirement plan. What do we need? We have our medical insurance. We have so many things that it's so hard for us to relate to this mercy, to this compassion of God. But he came to minister to those who have need, those who need his mercy. And then it says that, that there were men who were blind, lame, and paralyzed. And verse 5, I'll go to verse 5, it says, one man was there who had been in an invalid for 38 years. What is interesting is that in the Greek, there is a conjunction that says, now one man was there. And I want you guys to see this, that Christ has been summing this. First, he's in heaven with all his glory. He comes down to earth. Then he goes to Jerusalem. Then he goes to this feast when there were maybe millions of people. And then he goes to this pool. And then he goes to this man. Christ being personal, narrowing his ministry. He is not just a God to the multitudes, to the seven billion people. He is a God who is personal, who came to fulfill divine appointments. In chapter 4, he had had an appointment with a Samaritan woman. Now he's fulfilling another divine appointment. And today he is fulfilling a divine appointment with us, speaking to us and reminding us that he's alive, that he's powerful, that he is still extending mercy to this world. So it says that that the, it says that that man had been sick for 38 years, but then verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Notice, Jesus saw him. He didn't see him as today we were learning in Sunday school. It was God, Christ, who took the initiative to see this man. This man didn't even know who, God, who Christ was. But Jesus saw him, approached him. Jesus had the initiative. And then he says that he knew. The, the, the word in Greek conveys the idea that he had already knowledge, that he perceived. No one had to tell him. He knew already that this man had been there for a long time. He arrived to that knowledge on his own. And, and he understands the need to this man to the point of being willing to, to extend to him a vast, a huge, a great mercy. In verse, eight, verse 6, it says, as we go at the very end, it says that Jesus said to him, do you want 
to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Think of this poor man. Why was he there? Was he there because was he from a good family? Maybe not, is that right? Was he there because he had been a really good person? I don't know. Was he there because he had many resources to help others? Maybe not. Maybe he was there because of his own sin. We don't know. Because of his own, the, the decision of his dad and mom, of his family. An outcast, a person with great difficulties. But Jesus doesn't ask him questions. Hey, why are you there? Haven't you heard about me? I have been here around for a long time and you have never heard about me? What's wrong with you? And sometimes we see people in need. Sometimes we see people even in jail, suffering, even people who are in drugs, alcohol, homeless. And we tend to judge. I do. We tend to judge people. We tend to establish categories. We are here, others are down here. At the end of the day, we all need mercy and compassion. And Jesus has extended to us. And Jesus knew that this man needed mercy and asked him, do you want to be healed? He takes mercy, favor, compassion to this needy man. So let's see what is mercy. Mercy is one of the most essential qualities of God. Mercy specifically designates that quality in God by which he faithfully keeps his promises. Mercy is not getting the punishment we deserve. He fulfills, through mercy, he fulfills his promises despite our unworthiness and unfaithfulness. Mercy is one when God restrains himself from giving us what we deserve. That is what is mercy. Mercy is a very rich uh, term in the, in the Hebrew. It's a covenant word. It's a promise. That is, is the result of a promise. And it, it conveys the idea of loving kindness, grace, compassion, pity, steadfast love. That is what, that is what, what mercy is. It's interesting to see that in response to to the request of Moses in, in chapter 32 of Exodus, when Moses uh, asked God, please show me now your ways that I may know you. In chapter 34, God responds this way, and we read this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God slow to, un to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is who God is. God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God. In, in, the, in Deuteronomy 4.31 it says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget what? The Covenant with your fathers. 
And he was telling this to the people of Israel who had been so disobedient, so unworthy to receive his grace, his favor. Yet, because he had made a covenant, he was willing to be merciful. Or because he was merciful, he was willing to keep the covenant. That is who God is. My question for you now is, when you think of Christ, do you think of him as a merciful God? Have you experienced his mercy? Are you grateful for his mercy? Do you rejoice in his mercy? Without mercy, you and me wouldn't be here. His mercy has been manifested in the general revelation we have of him, creation. And the special revelation through scriptures and through Christ. I want you to think of his vast mercy as we, as we talk about this. And we think of his power, his omniscience, of his omnipresence. For example, in Psalm 139, you don't need to go there. David says that God knows and sees you. That he knows your path. That he's acquainted with all your ways. That he... he God formed you in, in your inward parts that he needed you to get in, in your mom's, mother's womb. He's very powerful. He has done all this for, for you. In verse 14, David says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Mercy and power go together. You can trust and you can know that that powerful God who has created you, who has formed you, who knows everything about you, that he's a good and merciful God who has come from heaven, left his glory to bless you, to minister you, to make his grace known to, to you. What is your struggle today? Even what is your sin? What do you think, what do you, think you are lacking of? A merciful God is taking care of you. The same God who formed you in the womb of your mother, he's watching over you. He has a good and perfect plan, plan for your life because that is who he is. He's a good, merciful, compassionate God. Which is so compassionate and so gracious to all of those who are here that he has manifested his mercy in a spiritual way which we cannot even comprehend at this time. Because you know that, you know that without Christ, we couldn't be here where we are in Christ? Do you know that all of us who are in this room were blind? You were blind. And I hope you are not blind yet, still. Luke 4.18 says that Jesus Christ came to give sight to the blind. Do you know that we are all 
were lame. Leviticus 21, 18 says that no person with blemish, no person lame, no person with health problems or physical problems could go into the Holy of Holies. But in Matthew 27, 51, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, through his death, broke open the curtain of the temple so that you, in spite of our blemish, can go inside and have a personal relationship with Christ? Do you know that we were utterly sick, paralyzed? Isaiah 53, 5 says that he has healed all our wounds. He has healed us. Spiritually speaking, all of us needed need mercy. Just like this paralyzed man of the pool of Bethesda, we could have been safe on our own. Read verse 7. It says, The sick man answered him, said, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Why? Because he couldn't do it. Just think such an incredible and poor and if I may say, miserable life of this man. Didn't have a mother to throw him, not a father, not a friend, no one to be there 24-7 ready to do it. And yet, Jesus Christ comes and shows him that mercy. And that mercy has been extended to us today. Not only the material, physical aspects, but also in the spiritual way which is more important than anything else. It was because of mercy that Paul was saved. First Timothy, you don't need to go there. 1.13 says that though Paul had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent, he what? Received mercy. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his what? Own Mercy. First Peter 1.3 says that according to his what? Great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He has caused us. He has made it. He has produced that in our lives. Not because we were so good. Not because we were so excellent. Not because we had such a great potential but because he was so merciful and so, com so, so compassionate to leave heaven, to come to the earth, to come to Jerusalem, to down a cross, and to visit you, to let you know that he's a merciful and compassionate God. His, his mercy is not passive, it's active. And it's so active that that mercy becomes power. That is my second point of the outline, and it's in verse 8, where it says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. That easy, that simple. Jesus wasn't just a philosopher or a teacher or somebody that talked, 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 high knowledge that people couldn't attain. He was practical and said, get up. Take your bed and walk. His love, his mercy are real. 
are real. And he manifested in the power of healing, restoring this man's health, health in, a, in a second. He is powerful. He has all authority. And I really hope I pray and pray that now you are beginning to identify yourself with this paralyzed man in the Bethesda pool. You needed that mercy. And you need that power of Christ for salvation. Have you experienced that mercy and that power in your life? Have you? Mercy is, of, is Christ offering you salvation. Power is giving you life. Today, we talk about power, but we don't know what true power is. Wow, that Mustang is really powerful engine, huh? We say. Wow, that is a powerful drink. Wow, I have a lot of power to make money. We don't know what power is, spiritually speaking. Let me tell you what the power of Christ is so that you value it in your life. Ephesians 2, 4 says, this is, says that though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. Just think of that. Did you know that you are talking to a person that was dead? Do you believe in miracles? I'm showing you one today. I was dead. More than literally speaking. Spiritually speaking, I was totally, totally dead for the rest of the, my eternity. But Jesus Christ brought me back to life and brought you back. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the dominion, domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a miracle. That's something you haven't done. You could never, ever, ever, ever do that, do that on your own. That's why Romans 1.16 calls the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because he heals, he restores, he gives life, gives eternal life. That's what we're talking in, in, in John, or I read from John 20.31, that we may have life eternal life. Now that we have established and understood and grasped a little bit better, I hope, the understanding of his, of his mercy and power of Christ as he was manifested in the life of the man of Bethesda, of the Bethesda pool, let's look at the third point. And that is in verse 14, the response to the mercy and power of Christ. And, and I won't go through verses 10 through 13 because of time. But basically in those three verses, we see a dialogue between this man that had, been, had just been healed and the leadership of the Jewish um, world of that time. And, and, and in that, in that um, dialogue, most commentaries believe that what, what is highlighted is that the response of this man of this man at the, of the Bethesda pool is different to, to the Samaritan woman's response and to the royal officer that had been healed in chapter 4. The, 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 Roman, uh, the royal officer, he believed. The Samaritan woman, what did she do? 
she went and told others about Christ. What does this man go? He goes to the temple. He just went to the temple. And, and even say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. That man said it. And in some ways that place Jesus in trouble, later on we'll see that. Or, or the, the Bible teaches that in other verses, other chapters in John. And then, but then let's go to verse 14. It says that Jesus, verse 14, it says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. Did Jesus knew? Did Jesus know that this man was going to sin? Of course. Of course. Because we all sin. We all sin. And Jesus Christ knew that he was going to sin. But what did Jesus? But why do you think Jesus was encouraging him not to sin? Knowing that he, he could sin. Because what Jesus was asking him and encouraging him was to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ instead of going to the temple and being there. Because sometimes that's what we do. We go to church, we become religious people. But that's not what he's expecting from us. What he's expecting from us is a personal relationship as John 15, 4 says, 15, 4 and 5 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me, in me and I in him, he, it is, did, it, it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing means nothing. You will never be able to overcome sin unless you have a personal close relationship with Jesus Christ. Only through him, depending on him, you will be able to overcome sin. And notice that Jesus tells him that nothing worse may happen to you. What worst thing could happen to this man. He didn't have a house. He didn't have a family. He couldn't have a retirement. What was, he maybe not even have food. How could he work? How could he, get, could he get the food? What worst thing could happen to him? Do you know what is the worst thing that could have happened to him? And we find it later on in chapter 5. To face the eternal judgment of Jesus Christ. Verses 44 to the end of the chapter 5. One day, that man was going to face the judgment of Jesus Christ. And that is the worst thing that could happen to him. As I told you at the beginning, this is a love history. We see the love of Christ reflected in his mercy and in his power. And today I hope and I pray that you may have experienced that mercy and power in your life and that you might be responding in a way that is pleasing and honoring to him and that is running away from sin, not in a religious manner, 
but by establishing and developing a close and personal relationship with him. If you already know Jesus Christ and have experienced that mercy and power, my encouragement is keep pressing on, keep pressing on, remembering every day his mercy, his power, and your response to that mercy and power. If you are maybe discouraged today, my encouragement is remember that. Sometimes we get depressed. Sometimes we get down. Sometimes we struggle with sin. Sometimes we think that God has not a purpose for us because we forget all what he has done for us. And finally, if you are here and you have not experienced that mercy and that power, as, the, as Pastor Leek said earlier on, please, please, consider the gospel. Consider the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And forgive us all, even me, that so often I forget that mercy and that power. And I just think that you are not sufficient to help me, to provide for me. Lord, I pray that all of us might have understood today, Lord, that that uh, mercy and power also expect a response from us. Not to sin, not by going into the religious world, and practices, but by developing a personal relationship with you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.